Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host. Nico Perino, and today we're putting together a flash episode to talk about the big decision from the Supreme Court yesterday in Mahanoy Area School District versus Brandy Levy. This is a case that we've discussed in the past on this podcast. And for those of you who don't remember the facts, I'm going to recap them uh, briefly, and then I'm going to introduce our guests today who are going to discuss the case with us. Uh, The case was argued in front of the Supreme Court on April 28th and involves Brandy Levy, who at the time uh, was a student and cheerleader at Mahanoy Area High School in Pennsylvania. And she was frustrated with school, to say the least. Um, she didn't make the varsity cheerleading team. Uh, so one day, it was, like, I believe, a Saturday at the Cocoa Hut, she decided to vent her frustrations on Snapchat. And she took a photo of her and her friend flipping off the camera and with a caption that read, fuck school, fuck softball, fuck cheer, fuck everything. Uh, and the uh, snap was visible to, I believe, about 250 of her friends, some of whom were fellow students, fellow cheerleaders. The snap made its way back to the cheerleading coaches who decided that the snap violated the team's rules, uh, the cheerleading team's rules, and kicked her off the junior varsity cheerleading team. I think she was frustrated because she didn't make the varsity cheerleading team. Anyway, the, she defi- decided to file the case because um, she was a minor, Uh, She filed it through her father. That's why the case is Mahanoy Area School District versus BL, uh, a minor by and through her father, Levy. And she won at essentially every level uh, of this case, I believe, the district court. And then there was a great Third Circuit opinion. And then the school district petitioned the Supreme Court to hear the case, which, as I said, it did on April 28th. And here we are today. Yesterday was, what, June 23rd. The Supreme Court issued an 8-1 opinion in favor of Brandy. Uh, uh, Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas, was the only dissenting opinion. There was a concurring opinion uh, from Gorsuch and Alito, I think written by Alito. And we're here to discuss it today with two people that should be very familiar to listeners of this show. Will Creeley is, of course, the legal director at FIRE. He's been appearing on the show on and off since we started in April of 2016. And then, of course, David Hudson, who's appeared on the show, I believe, two or three previous times. He uh, is an assistant professor of law at Belmont University. He's also an author, co-author, and co-editor of dozens of books and articles, and a Justice Robert H. Jackson legal fellow for FIRE and a First Amendment fellow for the Freedom Forum Institute. So David and Will, thanks for coming on the show to discuss this. Hey, it's an honor. Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to sneak on whenever I get a chance. And as I was saying to David before we hit record on this one, I'm so happy we're here to talk about a good opinion. I mean, <laughs> the nerves the last couple of weeks, Nico. I, they've been getting me. I imagine they've been getting to you too, David. Absolutely, absolutely. My thoughts exactly. So, Will, you've been doing a lot of media for this. Um, so we'll give you a breather as we start here. David, do you want to kind of give us your big picture thoughts on on this decision? Yeah, sure. I, I thought I, I looking at this opinion, I, I had sort of three major takeaways. Uh, one is I thought it was a generally a victory for student free speech rights in general. Um, second, I thought it was a, a victory for parental rights in a sense. 
And then third, I thought that it was a victory for the Supreme Court's Tinker decision, which was decided back in 1969. So why was it a victory for student First Amendment rights? Well, the court uh, emphasized that students have a right to engage in unpopular speech. You know, there's a great line in there from Justice Breyer's majority opinion where he says something to the effect that schools are nurseries of democracy. Yeah, that one's going to be that one's going to be quoted a lot. Yeah, I think that's going to go in a, an off-quoted phrase. But I mean, it, it's uh, it really reaffirmed the fact that students are persons under the Constitution and they don't shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech expression, uh, not just at the schoolhouse gate, but anywhere. Um, and they essentially have greater free speech rights off campus than they do on campus. And that school officials really have a heavier burden uh, when they attempt to regulate speech that occurs off campus. Um, I thought it also was a victory for parental rights uh, because schools don't always act in loco parentis. And when Brandy Levy made her, uh, you know, vulgar Snapchat post at the Cocoa Hut on a Saturday afternoon. If anybody was supposed to discipline her for that, it was really her parents, not the school, right? And parental rights is something that the United States Supreme Court has emphasized since the 1920s in cases like Meyer v. Nebraska and Pierce v. Society of Sisters. And so I thought that that, that, that was another takeaway from the case. And then I think the really refreshing thing for me is that the court reaffirmed a lot of the core principles of the Tinker case, right? It, you know, they quoted a lot of Justice Abe Fortas's opinion. Hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights or freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. They quoted uh, Fortas, Fortas for that great line where he said, uh, School officials can't act on undifferentiated fear, apprehension of disturbance, right? Which is not enough to overcome the right to freedom of expression. Uh, and they reaffirmed that, look, it, it has to be a substantial disruption before school officials can punish students, right? It can't be a minor disruption. It can't be some vague generality of, uh, you know, bothering team cohesion or team morale. It has to be a substantial disruption. So. Those are the three major takeaways that I took from it. Will? Yeah, I'm, I'm with David on all those excellent points. And uh, David has articulated uh, the crux of the matter and, and really the main reasons for my relief yesterday and my lasting relief this morning. Uh, like David, I'm, I'm pleased to see the court really uh, rediscover the animating spirit of Tinker, that student speech rights are important. Uh, and they're important for a variety of reasons. And maybe that's what I'm most excited about, thinking about uh, all the new tools in our toolkit. I was joking around yesterday to folks saying uh, in that all-staff meeting we had at lunch where we were chewing over the opinion together, it was kind of like a bunch of kids uh, hanging out on, uh, on, on Christmas morning, checking out all the new toys under the tree. I mean, look at all this great new language that we're going to use uh, to defend students and faculty nationwide for the next 20 years. I mean, that, there's a lot of good stuff in there. And sure, you know, a lot of it is dicta. And I'm sure we'll get to the, the whole thing and what this case means going down the line. But job number one was making sure that Brandy Levy's rights were vindicated. And that is a big check in that box. That is uh, kudos to the ACLU of PA, the ACLU National, David Cole, for bringing this one home. Because that Friday night, 
when I found out that cert had been granted, I, I won't forget it. My colleague, our colleague, Caitlin Patton, uh, sent around an email about 6.30 that Friday night in January saying, hey, I don't know if this went around already today, but Supreme Court wants to hear Mahanoy. And I thought, oh, no, <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> because the Third Circuit's opinion, and I miss it already, you know, the Third Circuit's opinion was so clear uh, and so useful uh, for not only resolving this case, but a variety of these cases. As David knows just as well as anybody, uh, the courts have been wandering around in the desert trying to figure out, the, the appellate courts have been wandering around in the desert trying to figure out a, a workable rule for off-campus uh, and online student speech in the K-12 context for, you know, going on two decades now. And so when this court hauled up Mahanoy out of all the cases, Bellevue to Wamba, Doninger, out of all the cases that have kind of kicked around here for the last 20 years, when they wanted to hear this one, I got nervous. So job one was getting Brandy's rights vindicated, and that's been done. So kudos to all involved, and really kudos to Brandy and her family for standing up and fighting the good fight. I can't say that enough. And now job number two uh, is to take all these, these shiny new toys we have from this language, take these three features, as Justice Breyer called them, uh, and put them to good use and make sure that we have not the uh, kind of flowery language that, that can't be uh, put to good purpose, but rather we have good language that's going to animate good rules and more clarification from the lower courts in the years to come. And that's, that's a job for us. And that's, I think, what we've got to do next. Yeah, and I don't think this outcome was clear from the oral arguments. I mean, there were, there were some good questioning back and forth. Uh, there was some skepticism. And then when you look at the past cases, especially since Tinker, we're looking at Hazelwood, Bethel, Colmeyer, Morris v. Frederick. I mean, the court hasn't, in the past half century, been very good on uh, high school speech cases. Um, it's, been, so, it's been very bad on high school speech cases. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is one of the real areas of erosion and, and decline in this court's uh, uh, First Amendment jurisprudence from a from an advocacy standpoint, from a First Amendment advocacy standpoint, I mean, that's what scared the hell out of me when they when they pulled it up. You know, I thought, oh, come on. And, and I just want to stop for just a second. And there's so much to talk about here. So pardon me for, for going off on different tangents here, but the mind is still racing. Uh, think about all the bullets dodged in yesterday's opinion. You know, uh, folks can say, oh, it's narrow. There's no bright line rule, et cetera. But yeah, but think about all the paths we did not go down. Uh, and, and kudos to, to uh, uh, Frank Lamonti for using the bullets dodged analogy in a tweet yesterday. And I think that's the right way to think about it. After we got done thinking about all the, the new toys and the new shiny new language we have to deploy, we also started talking about all the things that didn't happen in this case. We don't have a special carve out for extracurricular speech, right? We don't have uh, a, a, a loss. We don't have emboldened school administrators uh, who now have uh, the Supreme Court's uh, seal of approval for uh, extending some kind of long arm jurisdiction into student speech uh, without any kind of qualification or, or restriction. Uh, so, so all those things are really helpful. It's, it's useful just to think of the path not traveled. And that uh, makes me feel pretty good. For our listeners here, David, what was the question presented to the court squarely? Well, one of the questions was the, the, the Third Circuit's main opinion was that Tinker doesn't apply at all to student off-campus online speech. And so one way that the, the case was, uh, was iterated was... Um, Hold on, it looks like Will has, a, has an addendum to that. Uh, just to, uh, but but I want to just to be clear on this point, David, because I, I know you know this, but I want to make sure the listeners are clear because I see this glossed over quite a bit. The Third Circuit's opinion did reserve the question of how to approach harassment or true threats. And I, I see a lot of 
that both in the arguments from Lisa Blatt for uh, for petitioner, but also just in the general media coverage that the Third Circuit's opinion would have been, you know, this um, kind of uh, uh, handcuffs on school administrators to do anything about off-campus speech. And, and I don't quite think the Third Circuit went went that far, if you think that's fair. Oh, no, that's absolutely right. Um, harassment and true threats, you know, th- those are certainly true threats as an unprotected category of speech. And I think that's a real difference between Alito's concurrence and, and Breyer's majority opinion here. But essentially, uh, there was a there was a feeling that the Third Circuit uh, may have gone a little bit too far in saying categorically that Tinker really was confined to on-campus student speech and simply didn't apply to off-campus student speech. But the brilliance of the Third Circuit opinion, I thought, is they also said, well, even if Tinker applies, there's not a substantial disruption here. Uh, and that that was really a brilliant move by the Third Circuit because that allowed the Supreme Court to say, well, while we don't agree with this sort of categorical rule of the Third Circuit that Tinker generally doesn't apply to off-campus speech, we agree with the Third Circuit that there's there's nothing approaching a substantial disruption here. But I wanted to reaffirm something Will said because I think he he said it more eloquently than anyone I've ever heard so far, is he said that this dis- decision, I even wrote it down, uh, reaffirmed the animating spirit of Tinker. And I think that is just a most glorious aspect of this opinion, because ever since Tinker, we've been having so-called Tinker carve-outs, right? Uh, we've been chopping away at Tinker, and this decision reaffirms and breathes new light and spirit into Tinker. I want to go back to that Third Circuit opinion because we said that the, the this court didn't quite agree with the Third Circuit. It issued a more narrow opinion. And here's what Breyer says in his majority opinion. He says, unlike the Third Circuit, we do not believe the special characteristics that give schools additional license to regulate student speech always disappear when a school regulates speech that takes place off campus. The school's regulatory interests remain significant in some off-campus circumstances. The party's briefs and those of Amici, of which Fire was one, uh, list several types of off-campus behavior that may call for school regulation. These include serious or severe bullying or harassment, targeting particular individuals, which we just discussed, threats aimed at teachers or other students, which we just discussed, the failure to follow rules concerning lessons, the writing of papers, the use of computers, or participation in other online school activities, and breaches of school security devices, including material maintained within school computers. I mean, one of the things they do there is they just go through a list of unprotected speech categories. So, Will, when you're talking about how people say, well, you know, when if the Third Circuit's opinion stand, then, you know, people would be free to harass and bully. It's like, no, and maybe it's because the public doesn't understand what the carve-outs are to the First Amendment, that these are already unprotected categories. Um, but reading further down into the opinion, and I think this is kind of gets to the crux of what, they, what the Supreme Court did here. They said, particularly given the advent of computer-based learning, we hesitate to determine precisely which of many school-related off-campus activities belong on such a list. Neither do we now know how such a list might vary depending upon a student's age, the nature of the school off-campus activity, or the impact upon the school itself. Thus, we do not now set forth a broad, highly general First Amendment rule stating just what counts as off-campus speech and whether or how ordinary First Amendment standards must give way off-campus to a school's special need to prevent uh, substantial disruption of learning-related activities, yada, yada, yada. So, Will, 
How is this any different than Potter Stewart's I Know It When I See It? Well, that's a good question, Nico. And, and I, I, I tell you what, uh, just as you said earlier, we didn't necessarily have a, a great read on which way this ball was going to bounce following oral argument. You know, I felt a lot better after oral argument than I did going into it. Uh, the court was far more concerned uh, with uh, the proposal by uh, the school uh, district uh, to kind of give administrators carte blanche to reach into students' private lives uh, than I had expected. So I felt pretty good after oral argument. But the other thing I felt after oral argument, this is to your point, uh, <laughs> is that the justices were kind of at a loss. They all kind of sounded like the dogs that had caught the mail truck you know now that they had the case uh involving student speech rights in front of them what the hell were they going to do with it you know that you could kind of see them you know entering this trap that they had set for themselves by granting certain saying wait a second this is hard where do we draw this line so i'm not surprised that uh in the end they didn't really draw a line what we got instead were tea leaves we got clues we got a uh, you know, uh, Justice Breyer kind of pointing in a general direction with these three features. And for the listeners' sake, let's go over those real quick, if I may, if that's agreeable. Yeah, we should go over those three fe- features because he created a test of sorts, or at least a gu- guide work to think about these cases. <laughs> he created, he created a quote he called three features. It's not really all- a test, right? Because it's no. like. No, it's 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 three features, man. <laughs> it is, and I also want to just say because I've already heard this in the office, people saying, "Well, yeah, you know, the three factors." And I say, "I'm going to be a pedant about this for a long time." I say, "No, no, no, they're not factors; they're features." Thank you. <laughs> Let's talk about the three features. So, uh-huh. the first feature is, uh, as as uh, David uh, astutely uh, alluded to earlier, is that uh, there's this interest uh, in the parents, uh, that the parents have the interest to punish their own kids or uh, (laughs) regulate their own student speech, uh, their own children's speech. Uh, and when you're out of campus, uh, when you're, you're, as the court puts it, geographically speaking, off-campus speech will, uh, will normally fall within the zone of parental rather than school-related responsibility. So that's number one, right? Where you're speaking counts. If it's Saturday afternoon and you're at the Cocoa Hut, unless the school is having some weird, you know, uh, exam prep sponsored by school administrators at the Cocoa Hut on Saturday afternoon, guess what? You're on your own time. You know, the Cocoa Hut does not belong <laughs> to the Mahanoy area school district. And by the way, I urge listeners to Google search the Cocoa Hut. It's exactly as cool looking as you would think it would be. Um, number two, this, that's, it's so a that's convenience a first, store. I it's think. a convenience store. So number two, uh, so first of all, uh, yeah, in local parentis doesn't apply when the students are in the, the uh, parents' con, uh, control, right? That's the parents' job. And there's a number of amici briefs that, uh, pointed out this, uh, I think, uh, for example, the conservative uh, ACLJ uh, filed a brief in support of neither party saying, it's a parent's responsibility, damn it. It has nothing to do with the school. And, you know, I think Mr. Levy said as much, too, to the media. He said, they should have called me. I would have done something about it. It's not your right to punish the student for what she does uh, on her time. So that's number one. Sorry. Number two uh, is, uh, and this is a really good point. I'm very happy the court put this into into uh, writing. It says courts should be skeptical, more skeptical of a school's efforts to regulate off-campus speech for doing so may mean that the student cannot engage in that kind of speech at all because the speech that a student utters off-campus, if that can be regulated too, then guess what? The school uh, students are on the clock subject to punishment 24 hours a day. That's a surveillance state. Fire's brief hammered this point. We said, look, justices, and the Third Circuit hammered this point too for, for what it's worth, said, look, justices, 
if schools can punish students for what they say off campus, then it's open season on a wide variety of student speech. And you've really restricted their universe of what they can say into just screaming into their bedrooms with nobody around. I mean, like that's the only place that students are going to be able to vent their frustrations today. And think about the ramifications for, you know, you go to a, a Black Lives Matter rally on the weekend or you go to a Trump rally on the weekend and someone sees your post about it. The school administrators really want to be responsible for, for navigating that thicket. I'm sure some do. But the court just said now in the second feature, uh, when it comes to political or religious speech that occurs outside of a school uh, school or school program activity, the school will have a heavy burden to justify intervention. And you can bet we're going to be tattooing that exact phrase on letters and lawsuits for years to come because that's important. That's, I'm really glad the court got that in there. And finally, to wrap it up here, the third feature. So when Breyer's talking in, lo- you know, in local apprentice doesn't apply. Be careful that students aren't on the, all the clock uh, aren't on the clock for punishment all the time. And third, and this one is really fascinating. This one goes back to reaffirming, I think, Tinker's animating spirit. It's that schools themselves have an interest in protecting unpopular expression, and that teaching students that unpopular expression is part of education. I loved it. This is maybe my favorite part of the whole opinion. This is the one that makes me feel really good. Uh, even though we don't have a bright line, even though we just have these features, you know, these these load stars to point toward, this is a good one. Hey, schools, guess what? It's part of your job to teach about the First Amendment. The First Amendment means sometimes you have to uh, uh, hear and and, uh, respect, if if not agree with, uh, but allow for speech you don't uh, don't like. And that's uh, part of your educational mission. So you have an interest in protecting that. That makes me very happy. And uh, I think that's really maybe the most important point. Yeah. And here's Breyer's language to that score, kind of Hugo Blackish without being quite as a uh, Hugo Black. Um, American public schools are the nurseries of democracy. Our representative democracy only works if we protect the marketplace of ideas. This free exchange facilitates an informed public opinion, which when transmitted to lawmakers helps produce laws that reflect the people's will. That protection must include the protection of unpopular ideas for popular ideas have less need for protection. Thus, schools have a strong interest in ensuring that future generations understand the workings and practice of the well-known aphorism, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And then he puts in parentheticals. Although this quote is often attributed to Voltaire, it was likely coined by English writer Evelyn Beatrice Hall. So, uh, you know, we get some language there, nurseries of democracy that I think will be reflected in kind of First Amendment discussions, free speech discussions for years to come in the same way the marketplace of ideas is often quoted, which he quoted in his opinion. But yeah, it's, it, it, you know, he ends that section by saying, taken together, these three features of much off-campus speech means that the leeway the First Amendment grants to schools in light of their special characteristics is diminished. <laughs> then he punts. We leave for future cases to decide where, when, and how these features mean the speaker's off-campus location will make the critical difference. David, any other thoughts on the majority opinion? Well, I think that one important thing, I think, to understand about Tinker is there really sort of two parts to the Tinker rule, right? There's the substantial disruption part, which is how this case was decided. And it was very clear from oral argument that Justice Sotomayor and Breyer basically said, look, is there really a substantial disruption here? And ultimately, that's what the court decided, right? There just simply wasn't anything approaching a substantial disruption or even a reasonable forecast of substantial disruption. Is that is that dangerous, though? I mean, David, is it dangerous that they rested upon that? I mean, they, they 
Breyer says in his opinion, we can find no evidence in the record of the sort of, quote, substantial disruption of a school activity or threatened harm to the rights of others that must justify the school's action. Like, if, if, if Brand, let's say Brandy's Levy's snap on a Saturday at the Cocoa Hut started a movement <laughs> on campus of sorts. Well, yeah, that, but that, that's always going to be a concern with the Tinker Test when it partly depends upon the actions of onlookers, right? I mean, it's certainly... You know, it's been said sometimes by some courts sort of sanctions the heckler's veto, but it does reaffirm that standard, right? So there's no substantial disruption. I think it's important, though, to, to acknowledge that there is another part of Tinker, and that is that public school officials can prohibit student speech when it invades the rights of others. And her tweet was not target, or her Snapchat was not targeted at another specific individual. Um, it's still an unsettled area of K through 12 student speech jurisprudence as to exactly when student speech invades the rights of others. That's something that's still very much in play. That's something that we need fire for certainly um, because we do not want to have an expansive interpretation of the invasion of the rights of others. That would be scary. That would be terrifying. And when we live in an age of cyberbullying, I think there's still a lot of work to do to narrowly cabin that category. That's something this case did not deal with, again, because there was no harassment. There was no targeting of a specific individual. There was no invasion of the rights of others. It was just a general expression of frustration. And it was also, you know, kind of superfluous, as the court says. Um, yeah. And, and, that, and that's what Breyer says at the end of Penny. It might be tempting to dismiss BL's words as unworthy of the robust First Amendment protections discussed herein. And this is great language as well. But sometimes it is necessary to protect the superfluous in order to preserve the necessary. But my concern always comes with the necessary or the things that rankle people more or the things that might be closer to the line. You know, are they going to start walking this opinion back? Well, I, I, I worry less about walking back from the, the, the core commitments and more about how these three features will play out uh, in the details. And, and David's exactly right. The invades the right of other languages is, uh, is out there. <laughs> There's a number of uh, cases that FIRE is participating in as amicus uh, at the appellate court level right now, which involve high school Snapchat speech uh, that uh, I instantly thought of after reading the opinion yesterday and tried to apply some of those features to these outstanding cases. And as David says, it's unsettled. And as good as some of this language is, it's very easy to imagine how schools will attempt to distinguish it. They'll say, like, unlike Mahanoy, this speech mentioned another student by name or mentioned the school by name. Unlike Mahanoy, uh, this speech uh, caused more than the disruption. I mean, to some extent, it's helpful uh, to have the, uh, the disruption uh, in Mahanoy being so slight and so admittedly slight that the justices could note that there was no material or substantial disruption or even reasonable forecast of such. But as we've seen in cases like Doniger, right, the lower courts are weird with what they think uh, a disruption might be. So, you know, I can see a court saying, unlike in Mahanoy, where the school district administrator admitted there was no disruption here, we've got XYZ, right? I can just see those features having some play in the joint, so to speak, uh, and, and there'll be uh, room for mischief <laughs> and room to, I don't want Mahanoy to be this, this easy to distinguish case for all the lower courts. And sometimes I worry, uh, that it may be, um, we'll, we'll see, we will see. There's a lot of work to do. So we've got, we've got some, some good tools, but we've also got certainly challenges. 
So I want to move to the concurrence from Alito and Gorsuch, and they write that they wrote their concurrence because this is the first case in which we have considered the constitutionality of a public school's attempt to regulate true off-premises student speech, and therefore it is important that our opinion not be misunderstood. And then in footnote two, which is of interest to us who work in the college environment, they write, this case does not involve speech by a student at a public college or university. For several reasons, including the age, independence, and living arrangements of such students, regulation of their speech may, be, may raise very different questions from those presented here. I do not understand the decision in this case to apply to such students. I'm, you know, he, he doesn't editorialize on that much to suggest that college students might have more free speech rights, but I think it's understood or suggested or implicated by that footnote, wouldn't you say, Will? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> we will be hammering that for a long time. Yeah, I, you know, I'll tell you what, uh, after oral, oral argument, if you asked me which justice I'd want to write the brief, I would have said Alito. Uh, student speech has been a concern of his and uh, it, from, from predating his time on the court. Um, and, and he's been sensitive generally to uh, the importance of protecting speech in, in higher ed. Um, so I, I, I think of him as a, uh, a justice to who some extent gets it when it comes to free speech on campus. And, uh, when it came out as prior, you know, when I'm sitting there refreshing the Supreme court's page and you see, see that, that B right there, I thought, oh, here we go. Briar, as I recall, as I learned in oral argument, uh, is the son of a school principal. Uh, if I'm, if I'm not misremembering David, do I have that right? I believe so. Yeah. So some of Breyer's questions, I, I found him hard to read in oral argument, but Alito, I was I was pretty sure was going to be on our side. So I'll put it like this. Alito's opinion, uh, which is kind of this fascinating exegesis of, of the, uh, the the basis for in-local apprentice. Why does the state educate students in the first place? What, what right does the state have to uh, restrict students' speech uh, in public schools in the first place? That footnote, too, is going to do a lot of work for us because it says, wait a second, before we even talk about any of this, let's be clear. We're talking about grade school students, and that's a clarity. I would have loved to have seen it in the majority opinion, but we're going to make hay with it in the concurring opinion because that is a clarity that we rely on and we insist upon. And it's been implied uh, in other uh, student speech cases and, and student cases generally before the court. But it's, this is, uh, it's nice to have another uh, uh, brick in, to build that wall with because there should be a wall. Uh, grade school speech should be treated differently for all the features uh, listed in the majority opinion. And so that's a nice place to start with Alito. And, and David, I know you're kind of a scholar of of uh, Supreme Court. Kind of. <laughs> kind of a scholar. <laughs> yeah. He's the expert. He's a Jackson. He's a Thank Jackson you. He's the expert. He's, so he's, he's maybe the scholar. Nation, nation's preeminent experts. Let's put it like that. Yeah, your recall of cases is, uh, it still impresses me, even after I, I'm well aware of it. But Justice Breyer, I mean, if I'm recalling him correctly and his thinking on First Amendment issues correctly, he places a lot of emphasis on kind of how speech might serve democracy or the marketplace of ideas and is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is more skeptical of speech that might be, might not serve those purposes and so my concern here was what, that he would see this as superfluous and sort of dismiss it as not contributing much to the marketplace of ideas or to the democratic framework that our country depends upon. But he almost kind of like took a step back from looking at the content of the speech and how it might serve those purposes to like the role that colleges or not colleges, high schools play in 
bolstering that democracy and the necessity of allowing a wide berth there to allow students to even engage in superfluous speech. Yeah, I, I'm with Will. When I when I saw that Breyer wrote the opinion, I was a little nervous. Now, I did I did remember an oral argument that he had some questions about is this really a substantial disruption? But Breyer's jurisprudence on the whole, I don't think is great in the area of the First Amendment. He's often referred to as a balancer, and he often will consider the regulatory interests of the government quite significantly. Um, and he doesn't um, sometimes, uh, he, he just balances things a bit much, uh, you know, and, and instead of sometimes affirming core First Amendment principles. Alito, too, at times has been bad on the First Amendment, right? Recall he was the lone dissenter in Snyder versus Phelps. Um, he's been the lone dissenter in a couple other First Amendment cases. But as Will said, in the area of student speech, he wrote the Sachs opinion, I believe, of the Third Circuit, which he quoted in the case. And I thought one of the great takeaways from Alito's concurring opinion here is he says, quote, bullying and severe harassment are serious and age-old problems. But these concepts are not easy to define with the precision required for a regulation of speech. And so to me, that's a great line to quote any time we're dealing with any sort of policy that tries to regulate or define harassing or bullying speech. Um, so I think that in, in full candor, you asked my opinion about the, the justices and First Amendment jurisprudence. I, I think Breyer and Alito generally are it's kind of a mixed bag with them. I mean, they're not William O. Douglas. Uh, they're not Thurgood Marshall. Uh, they're not William Brennan. Um, but in the area of student speech, Justice Alito, as Will said, has, has been pretty strong. Um, and it, it reaffirms his pattern of writing concurring opinions. Didn't he have a concurring opinion in Morse v. Frederick in 2007 with Kennedy? That was, that was, that was pretty good. So uh, I think it's right. He does get it. Uh, when it when it comes to student speech, and this is, I think, one of Breyer's very best First Amendment opinions that that he's ever written in his long tenure on the court. Yeah, I, that's that's right, David. I looked it up, by the way, folks. Uh, so so I don't have anybody emailing me after the fact. He was not a uh, Irving Breyer was not a principal, but rather an attorney for uh, uh, the San Francisco School Board for a good forty years. So it's even worse. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. You know, so I, uh, there I was doing a, a podcast for a National Constitution Center after the oral argument, Mahanoy, uh, with Francesco uh, Negron for the uh, National School Boards Association. I think that's where I, I learned the fact from. He said, you know, Breyer's one of ours. <laughs> so that, that may have been where I heard it. But yeah, no, I, David's right on. Uh, but it's an interesting it's an interesting concurrence from Alito. Yeah, I mean, he spends it's longer. It's a longer concurrent. The concurrence is longer than the opinion. And they spend a lot of time just kind of philosophically analyzing what it means to enroll your kid in a public school, you know? Uh, it's, they write, when a public school regulates what students say or write when they are not on school grounds and are not participating in a school program, the school has the obligation to answer the question with which I began. Why should enrollment in a public school result in the diminution, uh, diminution of a student's free speech rights when uh, enrollment, in, and, and this is me kind of, that was the quote, but then the, you know it's like as compared to enrolling your student in a private school, where the government wouldn't have that long reached into their, into their off-campus lines. And then he said, they say later, enrollment cannot be treated as a complete transfer of parental authority over a student's speech. Yeah, that's right, and this speaks to David's point uh, about um, 
Mahanoy being a, a kind of a big win for parental rights too, because all of that language, that history uh, of um, the relationship between uh, parental control and school control is going to be useful. And we may see that uh, play out in cases yet to come. I'm thinking of the uh, uh, the discussion we are seeing nationwide about uh, school curricula, uh, what kind of uh, input parents uh, and state legislators uh, can have in uh, public school curricula. There are elements of that as well. You know, we're seeing these protests play out uh, about uh, what students are being taught, uh, the, uh, the the partisan uh, discussion of, of critical race theory, et cetera, in, in schools. You know, uh, some of Alito's uh, and, and joined by Gorsuch, some of that work in there uh, may figure in. Now, that's a, a different podcast for a different time and a different legal question, but it's interesting to see... Um, uh, Alito trace the uh, the history of the relationship between student and and uh, an educator in this uh, in this concurrence. I want to I want to talk now or close out with a discussion of uh, uh, Justice Thomas's dissenting opinion, which probably isn't much of a surprise that he was a dissenter here. Uh, his takeaway is that a searching review reveals that schools historically could discipline students in circumstances like those presented here. Yeah. And because the majority does not attempt to explain why we should not apply this historical rule and does not attempt to tether its approach to anything stable, I respectfully dissent. He also says, and I thought this was interesting, um, you know, perhaps there are good constitutional reasons, he writes, to depart from the historical rule. And perhaps this court and lower courts will identify and explain these reasons in the future. But because the court does not do so today, because it reaches the wrong result under the appropriate historical test, I respectfully dissent. David, what are your thoughts on on his argument there, that it's untethered from history and the Constitution? Well, it, it, it's not quite as bad as his uh, opinion, and more, uh, concurrent opinion in Morse v. Frederick, but it's still bad. I mean, how much mileage is one going to get off uh, the old Jack Seaver case from Vermont? <laughs> I mean, God, he, 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 he cites this old Vermont, 19th century Vermont case as it's if it, as if it's the gospel on high, and you know I I knew we weren't going to get his vote. I mean he he's called for the overruling of Tinker and in, in, in Morse v. Frederick. Uh, I frankly didn't find this as bad as um, as his concurrence in in, uh, in Morse. I mean it's not great, obviously, but he. You know, he does say plausible arguments can be raised in favor of departing from that historical doctrine. So, I mean, there's at least maybe a hope in the future in the right set of circumstances. Perhaps he'd actually vote for a student. But uh, I, I didn't spend as much time dissecting his opinion. I, I knew when he starts quoting the old Jack Seaver case. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what year is that one, David? Is that 1847 or something like that? Something like that. 1850-something. It's crazy. It's I a mean, very it's like, old Jack Seaver case at this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you, David. It's, uh, my colleague, uh, Adam Steinbaugh, said uh, uh, as soon as the opinion was issued, uh, something like 8 to 1, uh, Thomas J. dissenting the sweetest words that uh, Brandy Levy could have hoped for <laughs> to start out with, right? Because that means that he's, uh, he's, he's doing his old saw again uh, about how students don't have any rights. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quoting from that uh, that Morris concurrence where he said, quote, the history of public education suggests that the First Amendment originally understood does not protect student speech in public schools. You know, it's just more 
more of the same. He could have probably run the same opinion here, but you're right, David, he didn't. So now there may be some kind of glimmer of hope, right? Plausible arguments, but uh, I won't speculate on, uh, as to what those might be. I imagine I wouldn't like them uh, <laughs> either. You know, we'll see. Justice Thomas, you know, asked with a lot of his jurisprudence, you get the, the feeling that he's writing for a uh, you know, some government in exile that'll come in in 40 years and just discover him as the one voice of truth through all these years. You know, he's writing his own legal uh, history and his own legal reasoning and, and give him points for consistency, but it doesn't make for interesting reading. I think if you've read one opinion, you've probably read a lot of them at this point. So with all due respect to the justice, uh, I did, yeah, didn't expect to get him. Not surprised by it. It is what it is. But at the end of the day, you give me 8-1. Sure. I was shocked we got 8-1. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, right. what a great victory. I mean, this 8-1. Eight, eight that's wow. a great point, David, and especially, you know, given the the kind of fracturing we've seen in the court in some of these opinions from the April arguments, you know, where you've got these uh, pluralities or you've got these, you know, you got three justices over here, three over here. We've had various assortments of justices. So, um sitting there on on the SCOTUS webpage for the last couple of weeks, hitting refresh all the time and seeing all the other opinions that came down, I started to wonder if Mahanoy, maybe one of the reasons it was taking a while was that the justices were aligned into uh, different camps and we were going to see kind of a fractured, shattered court, you know, with some kind of uh, mess of a, of a plurality to kind of reason forth with. Now, we didn't get we didn't get the bright line rule that I might have liked, uh, but we did get our three features. And one thing we didn't get to think about, again, the kind of bullets dodged is some mess of an opinion that would have said some things over here, some things over here. I, you could have seen that coming potentially from the oral argument where, you know, some of the justices would have said uh, when it comes to bullying and harassment, it's open season. You know, you can regulate student speech writ large. And some of them said there's no right. Tinker should end at the schoolhouse gate. Right. You could have had a much messier opinion than we did. Uh, and so, yeah, right on. I'll take eight to one all day, all day. This is also the first student speech case uh, in which Barrett, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch sat on the court. So it gives us some sort of indication as to how they might rule in future cases. Uh, I don't know if the opinion gives you that, but the, the oral argument gave, gave you some well, of that. Know, I, yeah. yeah, I thought that Justice Barrett's questions were, were pretty interesting. And Justice Kavanaugh, thinking just uh, in the wake of his um, concurrence in the NCAA opinion, uh, he was pretty sensitive to, uh, I think, uh, what I would call like the plight of the censored student. You know, he was sympathetic to, to Brandy Levy and, and remembered, uh, given his, I think, his time as a student athlete and also his role in coaching uh, youth sports, uh, what it's like to be a frustrated student. So anytime you get a justice who's empathetic with the motivations of a student speaker, I'll take it. You know, that, that, that works for me. But other than that, I don't know if there's all that much you can glean here. David, any other final takeaways? Not trying to be sycophantic to Will, but I, the, the the great takeaway, as he said, is it reaffirms the animating spirit of Tinker. I, I'm going to borrow that and quote him extensively uh, because I think at the end of the day, that was awesome. It was awesome that you know t- you read Tinker; it's like a pion to student expression. I mean, there's so many great phrases in there, and. Um, for the first time in 50 something years, the Supreme court went back to that. And that, that to me is the ultimate point of positivity that emanates from this case is that the, the, the pro speech pro student viewpoint expressed in Tinker is back. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. I'm just going to jump in there. If I may, Nico, sorry. Go, sorry. And I say, first of all, say thank you to David. And I, I stole that one, David, right out of the, the uh, writing I did for, um, 
uh, Fire and uh, the NCAC and the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund in our uh, amicus brief. And the, just if I may quote briefly, because um, I'm I'm proud of it, but also think that that it shows uh, what a good opinion this is. And in the conclusion to our introduction of our brief, we said uh, this court must reaffirm Tinker's animating concern for student speech rights, not abandon it. Failure to do so will embolden campus censors. If public grade school administrators may surveil and punish off-campus student expression far beyond the schoolhouse gate, a generation of Americans will be taught a corrosive, illiberal lesson about the illusory values of their constitutional freedoms. To properly educate tomorrow's leaders about the power of their First Amendment rights and the limits of governmental authority, this court should uphold the Third Circuit's decision. And we got some of that spirit in there, in that opinion. So I'm, I'm right with you. This is a, a damn good opinion. Sounds like the third factor. Yeah, well, hey, <laughs> you know, I, it's funny to, to, to read the court's opinion after spending a, a month of my life holed up uh, here in this house uh, penning our, our brief for it. So it's, it's really gratifying to see some of what I hoped would be in the court's opinion end up in there. Well, I'll, I'll copy that brief into the show notes along with the, the uh, opinion, the concurrence, and the dissenting opinion. Again, the case we're discussing today is Mahanoy Area School District, the BL. case was decided yesterday on June 23rd after being argued on April 28th. It's a great victory for student rights. <clears throat> and Will and David, I appreciate you both coming onto the show to discuss this. Uh, we're releasing this podcast a little bit early to seize on the news, and I hope I'll have you guys on again very soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, Nico. I look forward to jumping back on with David in a couple of months or a couple of years when we've got a, we see how these three features wind their way through the lower courts. We should do a follow-up of this one in a little bit. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about us at Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash free speech talk, or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast we take feedback at so to speak at the fire.org please leave us reviews if you enjoyed the show reviews are the best way to help us get new listeners to listen to the show take reviews in apple Podcasts, google play or pretty much anywhere that you get your podcasts and until next time i thank you all again for listening